So Lord, um, we ask for a fresh infilling of your Holy Spirit, that you would anoint him uh, to share your word with us, that you would teach us through him, draw us into your truth and your grace. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. If I am a little bit more glued to my notes than you would typically experience, uh, know that it's because we've got some important work or maybe important rest to get to, and I want to be precise and I want to be concise as, me- as much as I can be. We are going to be finishing today, as you heard or at least inferred from what Natalie said about a new series starting next week. We're finishing the previous series, which is... Facing your soul. Any highlights? Any lowlights? You want to shout them out? A little bit of harsh in the Bathsheba story, yeah. We talked about a lot of things. We talked about what it means to be human. We talked about what it means to be less than human. Tracy spoke to us about what it means to be restored by grace, to have our identity rooted in grace. We learned about the pain of separation. And we learned what it is to live with our eyes and our energy set on participating in the divine nature of God and all that that entails. And throughout all of these messages, throughout all these weeks that we've been looking at what it means to have our image made, uh, we've mentioned, we've assumed, we've talked near, talked around, we've even prayed for what today we'll be giving our full attention. And in doing so, we need to open our Bibles to Psalm 51. Would you do so? We pick up with a character we've spent some time with lately, King David. Another opportunity, speak your voice out. Any one of you want to share some insight into who David is and maybe what events in his life we've been reading lately? Bathsheba. That's one of them. What happened? There might be someone next to you who hasn't been here for the last few weeks. They need a quick reminder. So just whisper in. Took his eyes off God. Who is King David, first off? He's a man after God's own heart. He's what? He's the anointed king. He's the king of Israel. He was a man who, from when he was really young, was anointed king. Not when he was old and powerful, but actually when he was young and weak. And he didn't take the throne until a considerable amount of time later, showing patience, right? There wasn't an amount of of, of urgency to get it and to hold it and to withhold it. And so it was a real kind of, you could call it an out-of-step character, um, but one that maybe we're too familiar with when he saw this woman bathing and said, she needs to be mine now, and took what did not belong to him. And so we pick up Psalm 51. At the beginning of the psalm, you get a little note. It says, for the choir director, or the director of music, a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. And let's jump all the way down to verse 10. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God. 
and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. How odd. (laughs) Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Do not cast me. We read another psalm during this series. Do you remember? It'd be a real shocker if you knew it. It was just kind of glanced at. Psalm 139. Go there real quick. Someone, verse 7, as loud as you can. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Where can I go from your spirit? Back to Psalm 51. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Wait a second. Is he confused? Psalm 139 tells us one of the most important facets of who the Lord is. It's a characteristic of him. He can't be anything else. That there is no place that you can go where the Lord is not. It's true. It's probably more true than than you believe, even though you believe it. That wherever you go, from the highest heavens to the deepest depths, in the times of joy and in the times and places of deep darkness, God is close to you. It is never otherwise. No one has seen God, but no one thing goes without being seen by God. Yeah? And even more than being seen, no one thing happens outside of God's immediate proximity. Where can I go from your spirit? David knows full well the answer is nowhere. I cannot go from your spirit. From God's own voice through Jeremiah 23, he says, who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them? Do I not fill heaven and earth? From Isaiah 6, the angels surrounding the throne, the cherubim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. Yes? Amen? Amen. And yet. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. This morning we're talking about the distinction between the omnipresence of God and the presence or the manifest presence of God. And what it has to do with you, both as an individual and as an integral part of God's entire plan, his people and his purposes. Can we pray together? Father, would you anoint our ears to hear, our hearts to receive, 
and our minds to understand things that are unknowable, depths that are unsearchable. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So the idea that God is omnipresent is really not often argued against, and rightfully so. More often disputed, uh, and yet for us today of unmatched importance, is, like I said, God's manifest presence. This is what David was concerned with, and today is what we are concerned with. No sin of David's could change God's character, right? No amount of sinning that David did could make it so that God's being was less than God's being. God will be always, everywhere, always. David's sin in no way could change God's omnipresence, but it was possible for God to remove from him his manifest presence, his tangible his close and knowing and tender presence, and the thought of it filled David with a deep, deep distress, as it should us. We often think that God's everywhereness, or that the everywhereness of God, um, and when I say we often think, I mean we, we don't often think it or say it out loud as much as we feel it, that the everywhereness of God is actually a deluder somehow of his, of his hereness, right? Anyone seen The Incredibles? Yeah. yeah. You know what Syndrome says, the bad guy? He says, I want everyone to have superpowers so that nobody does. That's kind of how we treat God's presence when we think, well, yeah, God's everywhere, so it's not a big deal that he's here. Yeah, do you feel that sometimes? You felt that before? But this is simply not true. God can be both everywhere and especially here all at once, all at the same time. Is this important to us? It's peculiar to me, too, when I think about David, that his distress about this topic is so deep. Because remember the timeline. David saw Bathsheba, right? He was at home in his castle when he shouldn't have been. His armies were out fighting wars. He should have been fighting with them. He sees this woman. He commits an uh, adulterous sin, and then instead of repenting, commits a murderous sin. Uh, and finally, it takes the prophet Nathan coming to him and confronting him in the eye. You are the man, he says, right? And... David writes this psalm after that moment of confrontation. But how does that conversation with Nathan end? If you go back to 2 Samuel 12, you can do this. You don't have to. David says to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replies to him, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Okay? David has been restored. Yeah? David's been forgiven. David can go back and reign from his throne. Nothing that God gave him has been taken from him, except, if you read a little further, the son that will be born shortly thereafter. And yet, with great fervor, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Why is the manifest presence of God, the Holy Spirit, so important to David. Why is it that even though all his sins are forgiven, his place in the annals of the kings is already set, his opportunity to rule is perfectly present, 
and yet he's deeply distressed. Why is it so important? Because the presence of God is essential. The manifest presence of God is essential because it's central to the whole story of God, because it's central to who God made you to be. I want to look at three important characteristics of God's presence for us today that I think in a, in a succinct way might, might clarify why it's so essential. The first is that it is a mark. Say mark. mark. Not the guy like the sign. Yeah, like a mark on something. Like what, uh, like what uh, graffiti people do, right? They go tag, they mark. The primary designating mark for God's people, I would argue, for those whom he's chosen and appointed is not face paint, right? It's not a flag. It's not even circumcision, although that is extremely important. But it's the presence, the spirit of God. That is the defining, designating mark for God's people who have been anointed to do his work in the world. Let's start all the way at the beginning. You can keep up. Genesis 2, 7. In creation, the Lord says... Or the Lord says through the author of Genesis, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And in 2.19, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them, etc., etc. What's missing from the animals? The Spirit of God. What's the designating mark of the people of God, the breath of God, the spirit of God. Furthermore, in that garden that God gave to Adam and Eve, he himself walked in the cool of the day, he says with them, right in them, his presence with man, looking for them especially. Unfortunately, after sin, Adam and Eve were cast from the garden, and after more sin, murder, again in this case, we're told, so Cain, who murdered his brother Abel, went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod. And there was a period of separation. And it wasn't long after that until God had to destroy all of humanity through the flood. Ouch. But God wasn't done. In Exodus, when God is communicating to Moses the plans that he has to create for himself a people, a treasured possession, you will be mine and I will be yours, he says, right? Moses is concerned he's not enough for the job. Who am I, he says, that I should do this? How, he says, to which God says, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. In other words, here's how you know that you're who I've called you to be. I'll be with you, and after all that happens, you'll meet me there because I'll be with you. <laughs> right? <laughs> And wouldn't you know it, they make it to the mountain and they build a tabernacle in the order of God's word. And then it says in Exodus 40, a cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And how did God mark his people? With his manifest presence. And they get all their offerings together, which they probably couldn't do like this because they were bulls and stuff. And they deliver their offerings to the altar 
And it says from now in Leviticus 9, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. And again, what's the mark? In fire and in cloud. God marks and identifies his kingdom, his people, with his glory and his presence, even fire coming down from heaven. That fire was not an everywhere thing, I don't think. Right? Is that the omnipresence of God or is that something different? Yeah. That was a right there thing. And it doesn't stop. When Israel transitions into a kingdom and Solomon builds the temple that David, who we've been reading about today, longed to see, longed to build, they dedicate the temple by which God is establishing his earthly throne, right? Because in the center of the temple is not the king's throne, but is the Ark of the Covenant, God's throne himself, right? He's marking his people as his. We read from 2 Chronicles 7. Again, if you're fast, you can get there quickly. When Solomon finished praying, guess what happened? Fire, word for word, came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. How is God establishing his people in their new order? His presence. Was that an everywhere thing? Did that happen where I'm from in Holland, Michigan, however long ago too at the same time? Actually, I don't know. It's possible, but I don't think so. That was a their thing. You tracking? And you know where we're going next, right? Acts chapter 2. Jesus is establishing the new church in the order of the new covenant, the new existence of God's people in the world in, uh, in line with the old, marking this new kingdom. He says, uh, it says in, in Acts 2, the voice of Luke, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The manifest presence of God in the form of fire, once again, marking his people. This time, right, not just the temple, not just the tabernacle, but each individual forming one temple for the presence, the manifest presence of God to dwell in the world, marked by that presence then and forevermore. The manifest presence of God is the designating, defining mark of the people of God, yes? Which leads us to the second characteristic, that the presence of God is not only a mark, but also the means by which he accomplishes what he calls us for in the first place. For the disciples in Acts, it was in that moment speaking in tongues as they saw fit, according to their own power, because they'd studied so much, all the languages of the world, as the Spirit enabled I'd encourage you to read the whole book of Acts, really the whole New Testament, because you can see how the entirety of this ministry is built on the power of the Spirit. But a couple, a couple examples. Peter says to the onlookers just a chapter later, Acts 3, why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Whose power was it? Spirit, right? 
Paul says, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Whose words? Whose power? Spirit is the mark, and it's the means. Even Jesus is both marked and enabled by the Spirit, right? Being baptized in the Spirit with the descending of the dove as the charter of his earthly ministry. And he himself says, some of his very first words, in fact, in Luke, they're the very first words of his, of his teaching at all. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Who marked Jesus? Who sent Jesus? The omnipresence of God? Not exactly, right? This is not the omnipresence of God's anointing and sending Jesus. It's the near and close and tender and knowing and manifest Holy Spirit of God. The mark and the means. And if you thought the Old Testament wasn't gonna get any love in the means department, remember that it was Isaiah that Jesus himself was quoting first off, right? And remember that fire that fell on the altar in the tabernacle that we talked about? Remember when we talked about that just a second ago? Uh, it was also a cloud and a pillar of fire that led them through the desert in the first place. How were they saved? Spirit. How were they marked? From the beginning, God has determined that his manifest presence would be the mark of the people and the means by which they fulfill their purposes. And neither of these matter very much without the third characteristic of God's presence, which is that God's presence is the purpose in the first place. Amen. That's the goal of it all. That's it. God marked you because he wanted you to be with him. And he gave you the means to be with him because he wanted you to be with him. It's God's joy. The Bible says that we are God's reward. And it's our joy. The Bible says that in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy, right? It's what we were made for. It's what you were made for. The whole purpose of God creating in the first place was that we would enjoy God, enjoy him through his creation. Not in just an omnipresent way, which is so easily a word used to complain that God isn't actually close to us anymore. No, God's... Absolutely omnipresent, but his goal is to be close, inf infinitely, intimately, manifestly close. God all in all. As Jesus says in John 14, right, I'm one with the Father and you are one with me. We are one with Christ, Spirit, Father. They're one with us. Jesus preparing a home for us, he says. And a home's not much without the people in it, Right?
The nearness of God is not just a means for something else. It is a means unto itself. And at the end of all things, Revelation 21, and we'll hear a lot more about this in the coming days. Then I saw, he says, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. We need to realize as people whom God has created and loved, when thinking about who you are at your most core fundamental identity, what most fundamentally marks you is the presence of God. The means by which you most foundationally live into who you are, even as an individual, is the presence of God, the power of God with you, and the great and marvelous destination that God has prepared for you, towards which we get to walk together, all the same, God himself. That's the good news. And that's the reality of the world that we live in. That's the reality of who God is, that he desires so strongly to be with us. And not in a flimsy way, like so often we are with each other, right? But in an eye-to-eye way, in a true way, in a deep way. And this is the tragedy now. There was another time the people of God tried to build a temple. They did a decent job. It's actually been a few times. You don't have to turn there because we're going to summarize, but in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we read last week from Jeremiah who was in such grief because of the sin of the people that was going to cause them to go into exile, and they were brought into captivity into Babylon, and essentially, uh, eventually God anointed, appointed a, a Messiah character, the Bible calls him, named Cyrus, who was actually the king, and sent all the people back, and they celebrated and rejoiced and Uh, And Cyrus and later Darius gave them some resources to rebuild the temple. And they rebuild the temple. And when they lay the foundations, the the people who'd seen the old ones start weeping. And they get mad when the people who are trying to help them tried to help because they didn't deserve to help. And all sorts of other weird things happen. And eventually they finish the temple. And it says they finished the temple. And they celebrated the Passover. And they dedicated it. And they brought the offerings. And then Darius did some stuff. And then some more stuff happened. And then they got really mad because they found people who had been uh, remnants in Israel who'd married foreigners because there were no one else. And so they forced them all to divorce their their wives. And then then they uh, didn't want people helping building the walls. So they held swords and they fought off all of their enemies while trying to build all the walls and isolated themselves in this community where they had a temple that they built and what was missing. What never came down. And what happens? What history do we have in the scriptures from that time until Jesus comes? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) We've got a little book uh, called Esther that takes place in Persia. 
which is a good book. You should read it. The tragedy is that it's really easy for us to know and to claim we're God's people and to take the gifts that he's given us and to run with them and to build something that kind of works and then to forget to wait for the presence of God to actually bless it. And we become content with the shell of our humanity because God made the shell too and it's really good, right? But the goal is the infilling. And the goal is the presence. And, and David, in this moment, is a model for us because couldn't he have just taken the throne back? He was forgiven already, right? Nathan said, you're not going to die. Didn't need to worry about dying. But he said, no, I can't. Don't take me from your presence. Do not remove your Holy Spirit from me. It doesn't flow as well, but there's another tragedy, a temptation that needs to be addressed too with regard to the Spirit because some of us in this world have been like, yeah, Spirit, that's the thing, and we want to take it for ourselves according to our own means and according to our own desires. Solomon the Sorcerer in uh, Acts it's chapter 9, I believe, correct? Nine, or something around there, that's probably wrong. Uh, says, uh, upon seeing the disciples come and laying their hands on people and filling them with the Spirit, he says, I want that. How much does that cost, right? And they rebuke him harshly, and rightfully so, because the Spirit is not to be bought. The Spirit is not to be earned by your works of righteousness. The Spirit is not something that... The Spirit is God's presence with you. God, his own desire, marking you as his because he called you according to his word, filling you with the power to do his work so that you can be with him according to his grace. So what do we do? Because I think there are some of us who have never before actually received the manifest or known the manifest presence of God. It's kind of hard to identify something. I want to, I want to say for now at least that the, the strongest identifier of it is that God is love. You have the manifest presence of God. You'll know love, okay? But what do we do? I think my best approach at this for us as a congregation is actually through a question. Going back to the book of Acts our New Testament representation model for the filling of the Spirit. Do you remember what Jesus said to them before that event happened? He said, go. Let's pull it up. Acts chapter 1. I don't have this one written down. Verse 4, he said, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So here's, here's how I want to go forward, trying to answer the question, what do we do in response to this good, true word? The question is this. 
how long do you think the disciples would have waited? How long? <laughs> how long before they were like, ah, I should go fish again? A couple of weeks. How long before they were like, ah, we were with Jesus the whole time, you know, we remember most of what he said, why don't we just go do it? How long should the people who rebuilt the temple have, have stayed and waited and actually discerned the Lord before running on with their ambitions? That's our question. The question is just turned to you. How long will you wait? Or, at least, are you willing to give it your attention for some time? Or rather, are you content with the shell? Because I can go and do enough. That'd be fine. Brother Lawrence is a model for us. Brother Lawrence was a man who was kind of tricked into a life of monasticism and ended up being a uh, dishwasher most of his life. Uh, but he's famous for teaching us about his practice of the presence of God. And um, it said of him, this brother is now so accustomed to that divine presence that he receives from it continual joy upon all occasions. I want that. For about 30 years... His soul has been filled with joys so continual and sometimes so great that he is forced to use means to moderate them and to hide them from others. <laughs> That's funny. That's actually funny, yeah. In the presence of the Lord is joy and fulfillment. Doesn't mean your life is gonna go smoothly. It meant the opposite for the life of Jesus and the apostles, but there's joy and there's fulfillment, and there's a wholeness, and the shell that it feels like we so often are is, is filled up and filled up in increasing measure as we continue to seek and live in the presence of God. Brother Lawrence says, we should establish ourselves in a sense of God's presence by continually conversing with him. It is a shameful thing to quit this fellowship with God in order to think of trifles and fooleries, and so we won't. Let's commit to be people who no longer waste our time thinking of trifles and fooleries, but who establish ourselves in the sense of God's presence. You are the temple of God. Have you personally known the presence of God? Have we corporately known the presence of God? Have we known the deep love of God? Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? I'd like to invite our prayer team up and I'd like to invite each of you to take a moment. You can sit in your chair, that's fine too, and consider asking the Spirit of the Lord to make his manifest presence a home in your body. And actually for a number of you, I'd ask that you come forward and receive the laying on of hands for the baptism of the Spirit or for a new and a fresh filling of the Spirit or for help <laughs> and all the questions regarding the Spirit. We're gonna take some time. We're not gonna rush through it. Can we do that? Yeah. Amen.
I was made. 